interesting. Well, let's pray, and then we're going to look into God's Word, because we do want to look at another aspect of mission in the 21st century. If you're going to do mission, here and now, we've got to face the world that the Sunbeams just introduced us to, because it's a world in phenomenal physical need, and we have to wrestle with that and know what God wants us to do, how He wants us to respond in the way that we do missions. So let's pray and ask the Lord to open our hearts. Father, we thank You that when You left Your Holy Spirit to help us to minister. It was not just to minister to people's spiritual needs, which is probably the most important thing, to secure their eternity, but also to show them your love by ministering to their physical needs. Father, may we all take our candles and light our world and help us to see in a more significant way this evening just what that means, to open our eyes, to look around and see those people that maybe others would say, they're not our problem, we don't need to worry about them. And Father, may we go that extra mile to reach out and minister to them. In Jesus' name, amen. Not long before Marsh and I left Ethiopia, I was heading off to work one day, and just as I was leaving our area, I saw a woman, a, a, a Christian sister that had been a good friend of Marsh's and mine for several years, and, and I took the time to stop and greet her before I went on to work. And uh, of course, in Ethiopia, greetings are rather extensive, and we went through the long, extensive greetings. And I was just getting ready to say goodbye, and she said to me, uh, Steve, did you hear about Ingadu? Now, Ingadu was a young guy in his late teenage years that lived on the street there in our neighborhood in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. When I say he lived on the street, I mean literally he survived in a plastic and tin lean-to shelter on the street. He hung around at the local bus stop where trucks would stop, and he survived by scrounging up odd jobs, shining shoes, helping unload the trucks. And I imagine every now and then resorting to petty theft when he got really hungry. I'd gotten to know him and some of the other street boys there, and I'd actually hired Ingadu to do a few jobs, uh, some landscaping and some other things where I'd worked with him. I had encouraged him to attend the local evangelical church that was there in our neighborhood, but I hadn't seen him in some weeks. So I said to my friend, no, Chaltu, I haven't seen Ingadu for a while. What's up with Ingadu? He died. We were speaking the local language, and for a moment I thought maybe my brain was scrambling something and not understanding, because I mean, he was in his older teen years, he's a young guy in the vigor of life, and I, thought, I said, excuse me, Chalter, did, did I understand you right? Did you say he died? Yeah. What could have happened, I thought. So I asked, was there some kind of accident or something? No, she said, he was uh, sick. And she used a euphemism that let me know she was talking about today's modern leprosy. Ingadu had died of AIDS. I thought of him as, you know, just kind of a kid, but he was a young man, probably sexually active, and in his malnourished state, certainly, if he had gotten AIDS, he would have, would have developed very quickly and he would have died very quickly. That afternoon, I stood in the kind of potter's field of the local Ethiopian Orthodox Church where street people and others who didn't have any money for a funeral were buried. And I looked around as maybe a dozen of Ingadu's street boy friends were there as his body was lowered down into the hole. And I wondered how many of them were also sick and might find their own permanent home in a hole next to his in just a few weeks or months. I had heard the statistics about AIDS, and I knew them in my head. I knew all about how many million AIDS patients there were around the world. But Ingadu's death drove it home and made it very, very personal for me. Maybe you've heard the same statistics. 
Today, there are between 33 and 40 million people who are HIV positive, who have AIDS. Already, roughly the same number, 33, 34 million people have died of AIDS. Either figure, that's roughly 50 people for every hospital bed in the United States. That's how many people have AIDS worldwide. Today, there are approximately 14 million who are AIDS orphans, children whose parents have died of AIDS. And every year, even with the antiretrovirals that are now at least slowing the advance of AIDS in developed countries and are a little bit more available in underdeveloped countries, even today, 2 million people are dying every year of HIV symptoms. In some countries in southern Africa, like Botswana and Swaziland, 30% of the adult population is HIV positive. There are whole districts in parts of southern Africa especially, though increasingly in parts of Asia as well, where all you can find are the very young and the very old, because everybody in between has died of AIDS. There are places where social services are shutting down, schools are closed, uh, public security is non-existent because of AIDS. In Kenya, in some businesses, two people are hired for every job opening because it's presumed that by the time training is finished, one of the two will probably be dead of AIDS. Now, how do you react when you hear statistics like that, when you hear stories like that about HIV AIDS? Many Christians respond by thinking, saying something like, well, Steve, if somebody dies of AIDS, isn't it kind of their own fault? I mean, don't most people have AIDS because of some specific act of immorality that they themselves have committed? And it's true that many people who are HIV positive in the world have AIDS because they have committed some specific act of immorality. But many, if not most, are innocent of any particular sin that gave them AIDS. Take, for example, the wife that Marcia and I knew, who was a faithful wife who got AIDS from her faithless husband. As one African pastor said, there are many, many wives in Africa who don't go out looking for AIDS, but it's brought home and given to them. Or take, for example, the young evangelist I knew who uh, was faithful to his wife and yet had a series of surgeries when the blood was not being properly tested, had to have several transfusions because of those surgeries at a time and a place where there was no testing for blood. And shortly after those surgeries developed symptoms of AIDS, almost certainly gotten through the for the blood that he received in the transfusions, and sometime after that, passed away and died. Eight to ten percent of all people with AIDS in the world are pre-adolescent children, mostly who were born with AIDS, who have committed no specific sin to have given AIDS to them. We don't know how many, what the exact statistics are, but huge numbers, millions and millions of people have AIDS around the world, and they got it not because they committed some specific sin. But brothers and sisters, let's be honest. Any sin that gives somebody AIDS is no worse than any other sin that all of us have committed. And if people got AIDS because they were sinners, then we would all be HIV positive this evening. So we can't just say, well, didn't they deserve to have it? We all deserve to have HIV AIDS. So probably a more realistic response that most of us then would have is, well, okay, Steve, I feel sorry for those people. It would be nice if I could do something. But, but frankly, most of them are a long way off. I don't know anybody with AIDS, or I, I don't have any close connection. They're in other countries, or a long way off, and so just frankly, it's not my problem. Now, AIDS isn't the only thing that it's easy for us to feel that way about. 
Our world is filled with all kinds of overwhelming human need. AIDS may be one of the most dramatic, but you don't have to look very far to see all kinds of human need that just overwhelms our population. Most of which we think, yeah, that's too bad, but it's not my problem. Take, for example, the problem of world hunger. Today, one out of every eight people in the world are chronically hungry. That is, they never have that full satisfied feeling that we have after we've just had a nice pizza dinner, like some of us are going to have tonight, or a great Sunday afternoon meal. They never have that feeling of being full. They're always feeling hungry. One out of every eight. Or one out of every six people in our world today do not have access to clean drinking water. Every glass of water that they drink is just as likely to make them sick as it is to quench their thirst. Huge problems of clean water and problems of poverty and and hunger. Or take the problem of, of children dying simply because they die of preventable diseases. Today, every 45 seconds, a child dies of malaria. And every year, one and a half million children die of diseases that could have been prevented simply if they had had childhood vaccines. Or the problem of human slavery in the year 2011. Problem that we thought years ago we had solved or dealt with. Today, there are 27 million people held in bondage against their will around the world. That's more people than were transported across the North Atlantic from Africa to the North American slave trade in 300 years of slave traffic. Today, more people now held in bondage. 600 to 800,000 women and children are trafficked every year, 80% of them into sexual slavery. Or the problem of childhood soldiers. Today, 300,000 children, mostly little boys, are held and used as soldiers, primarily in Afghanistan and Uganda. Many of us have heard about the tragedies of Liberia and Sierra Leone where childhood, the problem of childhood soldiers continues to plague those nations. Now, all of these things, we hear about them, we go, that's terrible, that, oh, that's awful. Somebody should do something about it, but what can I do? It's just a long way off, and it's basically not my problem. Now, if deep down that's the way we think, then really we have the same attitude as just about everybody else in our society. After all, isn't our main goal to take care of me? get a good job, take care of providing for my own family and just kind of concentrate on making sure my church is, is doing what it should do. And I've taken, isn't that what my job is? Well, that's what most people would say. But Jesus wants his disciples to be different from most people. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. If you have your Bible, please take it and open it to Luke chapter 10. Because the book of Luke is a discipleship manual on how Jesus wants his followers to respond to the world around them. It's about walking the path of following Jesus. And throughout Luke, there's a whole series of parables that Luke records that some of the other Gospels don't have. Parables that very specifically tell Jesus' followers how they're supposed to act differently from the rest of the world. That's what the parable of the Good Samaritan is all about. Good Samaritan? Come on, Steve. That's the first parable. That's the first Bible story most of us learn in Sunday school after David and Goliath. The Good Samaritan. What more can we possibly learn about the Good Samaritan? I think a familiar story like the Good Samaritan be so familiar. Sometimes we think, well, there's nothing more we can learn, and we overlook some key observations. This evening, I want us to notice two key observations from the parable of the Good Samaritan that we so easily overlook. 
The first is the question that Jesus was answering. And the question was, who is and who is not my problem? Who can I ignore, Jesus? I mean, surely I can ignore some of these problems, right? Who is it that I can ignore? Let's pick up the story in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, well, then, who is my neighbor? A lawyer skilled in the Old Testament asked Jesus a question that many of the rabbis loved to debate. What is actually necessary to get eternal life? But notice his question and the reason, his motivation for that question. You see, he's not really sincere, verse 25 tells us. He's trying to what? To test Jesus. You see, he knows that if Jesus makes the standard too high, that many of the common people that are following him will drift away and not want to follow him anymore. But if he sets the standard too low, he'll be making light of the Old Testament law. So he thinks he's got Jesus in a corner here. He thinks he can test him and trip him up and embarrass him in public. Well, Jesus knows that this guy thinks he knows it all, and so he also knows what's going on in his heart. So he turns the question back around to him. He's got a plan. He wants to turn this guy's world upside down. So he gives him a chance to answer. Well, you've got an idea. What do you think? And the guy answers with a very good answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's an answer that Jesus himself gave at some other times. And so he answers it, and Jesus says, that's it. If you love God absolutely perfectly, you'll have eternal life. Now, by the way, Jesus was not teaching work salvation because the only person who has ever loved God perfectly with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength is Jesus himself. Everybody else falls short. But this guy gives this answer, and now that Jesus says, yeah, that's the right answer, he proves that he knew the right answer all along. Now, he's backed himself into a corner, you see. And so he has to make himself look good. And so wanting to make himself look good, wanting to justify himself, my, my question really was valid, Jesus. He says, well, we all know that, Jesus. We know you're supposed to love God and love your neighbor, but the real question is, who is my neighbor? Because we know that you can't love everybody. See, what he's saying, as the Net Bible puts it, is he wants to confidently establish his own righteousness. What he's saying is, Jesus, yeah, the Old Testament teachers are supposed to love your neighbor, but I can't love everyone. There are certainly some people out there that I can't show love to, so let's draw a fence around my neighborhood. Let's tell me who's in and who's out. In other words, let's make this command doable. Who's my problem and who's not my problem, Jesus? He sounds a lot like most of us. Because most of us assume that there are people that, yes, we're supposed to love. I mean, you guys love everybody in your youth group. Well, maybe everybody but one or two people in your youth group. Because they're your friends. You hang with them. We love everybody in our church. We're ready to be neighbors to everybody at Calvary. 
We love a lot of other Christians and even some unbelievers who are pretty good people. But we can't be expected to love everybody, right? Like that bothersome, irksome neighbor who's constantly giving you trouble in your neighborhood. You don't have to love him, right? That that person, surely, you're not responsible for that person. Or that kind of jerk at work who's constantly piling up extra work for you to do or making you look bad in front of the boss. You don't have to love that person, do you? Or that person at school that does everything they can to needle you and get on you and make you look bad in front of other people to embarrass you. You're not responsible to love that person, are you? Or how about that village in Bolivia that doesn't have clean water? Those kids in Ethiopia who aren't, don't have access to childhood vaccines. Or that kid that was trafficked into prostitution in India. You don't have to love them, right? They're too remote, too far away. Or that faithless husband who gave his wife AIDS in Johannesburg. That prostitute who's HIV positive in Nairobi. That homosexual person who's got AIDS in San Francisco. We don't have to love them, right? I mean, they've committed some sin to get AIDS. We're not responsible for them, right? Who is my neighbor, Jesus? Who's outside? Who's, who do I can say, they're not my problem? And who's inside? I can say, all right, I'll take care of them. That's the first observation. That's what Jesus is telling us when he tells the parable, the Good Samaritan. Who don't you have to worry about? And who do you? Who is your problem? How does he answer it? That's the second observation. He picks up his answer in verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So, too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, as soon as Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, everybody who was listening to him in that crowd went, because they all knew. That was one of the most dangerous roads in ancient Palestine. That was a road you did not travel on if you were traveling by yourself. You were asking for trouble if you did. So probably some of these people thought, well, if he was going from Jerusalem to Jericho by himself, he probably deserved whatever he got. I mean, I mean, that's a dangerous road. He shouldn't have been traveling by himself anyway. And then when Jesus mentions the priest and the Levite coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho, their ears perked up. These are good people, religious people, respectable people. They would have also known that many priests that worked in the temple up in Jerusalem actually lived down in Jericho. You see, they didn't go to work every day, but they would work for a six-week stint and then spend more time with their family. Many of the people that would be traveling down, the priests and Levites, would actually have gone up and have been working very, very hard in the temple area for six months or so, six weeks or so. And then as they came back down, they'd be exhausted after a long time of ministry serving God. And when they saw this guy on the side of the road in a dangerous part of the world, they had every right to pass by. For for one thing, they're tired. They've been ministering. For another thing, uh, it it could be an ambush. It could be a setup. Somebody trying to get them to stop. as As Jesus tells the story and these guys walk by, everyone would go, yeah, that's right. Too dangerous. He's really not their problem. To help us understand, let me, let me draw a parallel. The missions conference was just about over. 
And the missionary speaker and the pastor decided that on their way home, back to where they were going to spend the night, they'd go out and get a bite to eat someplace at a restaurant. But as they headed for the restaurant that the pastor had in mind, um, well, they discovered there was a, uh, a detour. They couldn't go the direct way, so they took a side road, and, and there was another detour. And before they knew it, they were in a really dangerous part of town. In fact, it was a town known, a part of town known for its gang activity. A, a part of town that you wouldn't want to stop in late at night after dark. And then up ahead, there, as they're driving through this very dangerous part of town, there was a car stalled with its hood up. There was a guy leaning over the engine. Car trouble? Or maybe designed to look like car trouble. The pastor looked at the missionary. The missionary looked at the pastor. And they just kind of nodded, knowing that the safe thing to do, the prudent thing to do. They were, they were tired anyway. They had had a long week at the missions conference. They had been serving the Lord all week. This just wasn't their problem. So they drove on by. That's what this sounded like to Jesus' hearers. The priest and the Levite are not villains. They're doing the normal thing, the expected thing, the thing everybody would say. No problem. You're, you're good people. You're religious people. And this guy is just not your problem. Then Jesus continues the story. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave it to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the lie replied, well, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, you all know about Samaritans. They were both religiously and ethnically suspect. They were, well, they were just the people that the Jews wouldn't have anything to do with. Ethnically, there was a divide between them. These were dangerous people. Religiously, they were heretics. These are dangerous people in every way. It would sort of be like this. And let's pick up our story from before. After the pastor and the missionary had driven on by, another car approached the stalled car. Only this time, the car stopped. Outstepped the imam of the local mosque. You knew he was a Muslim imam because of his dress. And he walked over to the man who was leaning over the engine and said, Excuse me, sir, you're having car problems. The man said, Yeah, it stalled out on me. and I'm not much of a mechanic and I don't know what I can do about this. No problem, he said. I have a cell phone. I will call for a tow truck. Uh oh, please, buddy, don't call for a tow truck. I don't have any extra money on me, you see. Ah, no problem. I know a man who has a tow truck and he will come even at this late hour. The imam dials a number on his cell phone and before you know it, a truck pulls up, hook up the car and they take it to a garage that the imam says, I know this man. He's a good man. He's an honest man. He will take care of your car. He's working late tonight. I called him. He's still there. He will take care of your car. They pull in, and the imam goes over to the man, and he says, Here, here's $100 for the tow. And, and here, here's 500 more dollars. You please fix this man's car, and if there's anything else that is needed to fix this man's car, you call me, and I will pay. Muslim? An imam? We're not comfortable with that. That's just the way Jesus' listeners felt. 
when he told this story about the Samaritan. They're not comfortable with this. Because if there's anybody who could say, this guy's not my problem, it was the Samaritan because of the hostility between them. But not only does he care for him, he does it lavishly. He puts him on his own donkey. He pours on wine and oil, wine to kill the germs, antiseptic, oil to soothe it. When he takes him to the inn, he takes care of him. And the next day, he leaves two silver coins. The amount is enough to take care of this guy for three weeks in the inn. And he gives him a blank check to the inn owner if anything else is needed. He lavishly cares for his needs. You see, what Jesus is saying is this. My disciples lavishly care for the needs of those that others would say, They're not your problem. And brothers and sisters, that's the way we do mission today, in 2011. There's massive human need around the world. HIV is right at the top of the list. Jesus' disciples look at that need and they say, others may say, that's not really my problem. But if I'm a disciple of Jesus, I lavishly care for those needs. And when we do, we open up great opportunity for mission. Let's take HIV AIDS as an example. It's a horrible scourge, but God is using it to open up doors for mission all around the world. First of all, he's using it to open up doors for people to come to Jesus Christ. People who know they are dying, who know they are looking eternity in the face. Marcia and I were in Ethiopia. I worked with an Ethiopian pastor at the school that we taught at. And this pastor was invited to come to some local youth meetings and give a lecture on HIV AIDS prevention. At one of the meetings, he went, and there was also a guy there from the government who spent all of his time talking about how you could prevent HIV-AIDS by using condoms. Well, my friend got up afterwards, and he said, well, with all due respect to this gentleman, I'd like to tell you an even more sure way to prevent HIV-AIDS. And he talked about sexual abstinence until marriage and faithfulness in marriage. After he finished, the first guy stood up again and he said, uh, before we break up, I'd like to add one more thing. You know what this pastor has just said? It's actually very, very accurate. That's even a safer way to prevent HIV AIDS. Well, afterwards, my friend was mobbed by people, some of them HIV positive, because he had shared that he was a pastor and a Christian. And he also shared that there was hope for everyone who even had AIDS. And afterwards, he had a marvelous opportunity to share the gospel. Several people came to Christ right there because they knew they were dying. And this was a man who offered them hope. HIV-AIDS also presents us with a marvelous opportunity to show the validity of biblical morals. Uh, The country of Uganda in the late 1990s had a 20% positive adult HIV positive uh, rate. And the president of Uganda made as he and his top priority a campaign to prevent AIDS by pressing abstinence and faithfulness as the top two ways of preventing AIDS. They made a national campaign out of this. It was radio and television ads. The president, the first lady promoted this, billboards. And within a few years, by the year 2002, the HIV AIDS rate in Uganda had dropped from 20% to 6%. Uh, A report from the U.S. Agency for International Development called it a social vaccine that was as effective as if a vaccine for AIDS had been developed that was 80% effective. And that's just biblical morality. Biblical morality that says, be faithful, abstain until you're married. And that's a message we can proclaim. That biblical truth is valid. HIV presents us actually an opportunity to show that God's word works. 
And then it presents us a marvelous opportunity to show the love of Christ for those everyone else is ignoring. Let me tell you about Rose very briefly. Rose is one of those heroes in the battle with HIV-AIDS. Rose is just a young mother. She was married at age 13. She's from the country of Zimbabwe. Had her first child by the time she was 15. By the time she was in her mid-30s, she had, was caring for nine. She, she was a widow by then. Her husband had died, probably of AIDS. She was caring for nine children, some of them not her own, that she had taken in. She gets up every morning at 4 a.m. and goes to work as a janitor and comes back and cares for her children. But that's not enough because Rose is so concerned over the impact of AIDS in her country that she has organized 21 Christian homes to help take care of AIDS orphans. Some of those homes are headed by orphans as young as 12. And after she finishes her own job, she goes and she visits each of these 21 homes to make sure all of their needs are being met. When asked why she does this, just, just a normal, everyday lady, Rose says, I am the hands and feet of Jesus for these needy children. See, here is a hero who simply wants to say, yes, they are my problem, and reach out and meet them. Now, brothers and sisters of Calvary Church, you can't take care of all the needs of all of the desperately poor, hungry, thirsty, suffering people in the world. And God doesn't expect us to try to meet every one of the needs. But he does expect us to reach out and meet the needs that he presents us with, to focus on some of those needs. One of my friends who was a missionary with me in Ethiopia said, Jesus told us what to do if there was one guy who was on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. He didn't tell us what to do if the whole road was lined with hundreds of guys. And that's sometimes what the needs of the world, how they seem to overwhelm us. There's so many out there. We're not responsible for all of that. But we're responsible to say, Lord, what am I going to do? I'm going to reach out and minister to the physical needs of some that others would say. They're not my problem. It involves prayer. It involves focusing on specific people. It involves getting involved where we can. The MICA Project this Sunday is a great example of a way to go out and start ministering just in the local community. It involves, I think, focusing on some far away, maybe supporting financially an AIDS project, maybe going and helping care for some AIDS orphans or otherwise ministering to those suffering with AIDS in our local community or at more of it at a distance. It might involve supporting a missionary project at some length, some distance, that involves both caring for people's physical needs and sharing the gospel with them. Whatever it is, God expects every one of his children to show that they're really followers of Christ by lavishly meeting the needs of some that others would say, they're not your problem. Shortly after Nguru's death, I was uh, in that same part of town and I met another young man, a guy named Mogus. Mogus was a fine Christian young guy, regular attender of the local evangelical church. In fact, he was the youth music leader uh, of that church, of their youth choir and, and uh, worship praise band. And I, I met Mogus and was talking to him and I remember that Mogus also knew Ingadu. And so I mentioned about Ingadu's death. And Mogus said, yes, yes, I actually, Mogus said, he said, I actually saw Ingadu a few weeks before his death. Oh, I said, really? Tell me about it. What happened? He said, well, Ingadu wasn't looking very good. So I asked him how he was feeling. He said, oh, Mogus, I'm very hungry today. So Mogus, without a thought, invited him into a little sidewalk cafe that was there and ordered up two helpings of sour, spongy, and jera bread that Ethiopians love so much and hot, spicy lentil stew on top of it. And he said he had a good lunch. And as, as we ate, I shared with him the gospel just to make absolutely sure that Ingadu knew the way of salvation. And he said, as we shared, and I talked, 
And Guru assured me that he did understand that that was the way that a person needed to respond in order to be sure of his own salvation. Whether or not he actually trusted Christ, I don't know. But Mogus said he knew the way. Mogus is an example, along with Rose, of our brothers and sisters who are reaching out and ministering to others that some might say they're not your problem. We need to follow their example as well. Let's pray. Father, thanks for the reminder from this story that we know only too well, this parable. But may we not just take it for granted because we know it so well. Father, help us to realize that we have a hurting world. That's part of mission in this new century. It's part of mission in these coming decades. A desperately hurting world with lots of physical need. And may we as your children show that we're your followers by lavishly meeting the needs of some that others would say, you don't need to worry about them. Show us the ones you want us to reach out and minister to, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.